The following is brought to you by Michael Bolick, Joe Q. Carr, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Will Harris, and Craig. Politics, 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 politics. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast. My name is Justin Robert Young, joining you... A scant 20 days, 20 days away from Election Day 1. All right, we got a a hell of a show here for you today. The Politics, Politics, Politics Orphanage Alliance between myself and Andrew Heaton has indeed come to fruition and will be on display... In this episode, not only will you hear my thoughts on the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearing, but also you will hear them with him, Andrew Heaton, who I feel so bad. Oh my God, I feel so bad. I talked this man into driving across the country so we could hang out together and do a bunch of podcasts and we could uh, uh, be here through the election. It would just be, uh, I mean, it's the closest I've come to having any kind of staff or coworker in many, many years, like physically. And uh, within 48 hours, he gets robbed. (laughs) Within 48 hours of being here, his car gets broken into and he gets a bunch of stuff stolen. Uh, uh, so, so, uh, just know that, know that he's a good lad though. You're going to enjoy him a little bit later and a just bonker story about the mayor of Anchorage, Alaska, snow infects people's brains and makes them crazy. I will prove it to you with this story. And finally, an interview all about the Arizona Latino demo. Something that's going to be very, very, very crucial as we get in to the micro communities that decide an election. Exactly how activated is the Latino community in various states that are swing states in this election, including Arizona and Florida. But also, is there a growing sentiment specifically among Latinos, as in uh, 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 men, for Trump in the same way that we've seen in Florida? We're going to have a great interview about that. But first... You know, when Trump got COVID, a lot of people hit me up via text or Twitter or email and said, this is the October surprise, right? To which I said, no, it's not the October surprise. Because that's not what an October surprise is. It is a surprise that happened in October, no doubt. But the way in campaigns we have understood an October surprise 
what it has often meant is old information that has been saved so it's popped at the exact right moment to maximize its damage. For example, in 2000, George W. Bush uh, having uh, uh, been revealed to have once gotten a DUI. Heretofore unknown in the public record, he was with some tennis star, I think, but it was when in his in his wild days before he settled down and married the librarian. You know, got off the sauce. That's an October surprise. Why? Because if we find out about it in July, we sort through it by the time that it's ballot box time. But if you do it in mid to late October, let's say for example October fourteenth then it might weigh more on your mind when you are making your decisions. All right, another preamble point. I said on this very show that should Joe Biden be the nominee for the Democratic Party, that the new version of Hillary Clinton's emails would be Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden is a colorful character. He has done things that if your neighbor did them, you would gossip with your wife about. He has been involved overseas. That's something that that Trump has tried to hit on is is the, the, the coziness between politicians and international interests. Blah, blah, blah. Right. I thought it was a slam dunk that Hunter would be something that Trump would mention every other word. Now, that was before coronavirus. That was before COVID. So, it is, I guess, understandable. At least I have a reason to to explain why I was wrong, because I, I don't think Hunter's been mentioned a lot during this campaign until today. Yes. New York Post headline, a story by Emma Jo Morris and Gabrielle Fon Rouge. 5 a.m. East Coast time. Smoking gun email reveals how Hunter Biden introduced Ukrainian businessman to VP dad. I will read for you the first couple paragraphs. Hunter Biden introduced his father, then Vice President Joe Biden, to a top executive at a Ukrainian energy firm less than a year before the elder Biden pressured government officials in Ukraine into firing a prosecutor who was investigating the company, according to emails obtained by the Boast. Never before revealed uh, meetings is mentioned in a message of appreciation that Vadim Polharsky an advisor to the board of Burisma, allegedly sent Hunter Biden on uh, April 17, 2015, about a year after Hunter joined the Burisma board at a reported salary of $50,000 a month. Quote the email, Dear Hunter, thank you for inviting me to D.C. and giving me an opportunity to meet your father and spend some time together. It's really an honor and a pleasure. The email from May 2014 shows Posharsky reportedly Burisma's number three exec asking Hunter for, quote, advice how you can use your influence on the company's behalf. The blockbuster response, it's a bit of an explosive phrasing there, 
which flies in the face of Joe Biden's claim that he's, quote, never spoken to my son about his overseas business dealings is contained in a massive trove of data recovered from a laptop computer. Among that treasure trove is a 12-minute video that appears to show Hunter, who has admitted to struggling with addiction problems, smoking crack while engaged in a sex act with an unidentified woman, as well as numerous other sexually explicit images. The post does uh, have a picture on this article of what very much looks to be Hunter Biden lying in bed, smoking a cigarette with two gold chains on. Uh, It is credited as photos from Hunter Biden's hard drive. Also credited as from Hunter Biden's hard drive is a a picture of Hunter Biden standing with uh, presumably members of the Biden family. I don't know how many are his kids here, but he has his arm around the Democratic nominee for president, his father, Joe Biden. So what does this mean? Well, before we attack the validity of this information, let us first recognize something. And that is the existence of raw information. And I'm using that very specifically. Raw information. We have an email. We have two pictures that the New York Post is saying came from this hard drive. Now, we don't even really have to believe that they got the hard drive from the place they say, which they do paint a very convoluted story. It was on a laptop that was dropped off at a computer repair shop in Delaware, and nobody ever came to pick it up. Eventually... It went to the FBI, but not before. It went to Rudy Giuliani, and Rudy Giuliani was the guy who got it to the post. We'll get to that in a second. But you don't really even need to believe that. You could believe that this was given directly to the New York Post from the FBI, which I might find to be a little bit more believable. But they don't want to say that it's from the FBI, so they have to paint this ridiculous picture that I guess on some level the chain of custody is believable. You want to know why you don't have to believe that? Because you can attack or defend yourself based on the raw information. And I do mean that that goes both ways. You can say, I never sent that email or that email was never sent. That email's fabricated. The pictures are a little harder. You would have to find where somebody got a picture of Hunter Biden. Not impossible, though. But at least now we're attacking evidence in comparison to an article that I spent a lot of time criticizing, and that was the Atlantic's article about Donald Trump's opinion of military people. And that was largely promoted by the idea that up in the lead 
Donald Trump called military service people through World War One suckers and losers, according to four anonymous sources. This is a claim that was repeated both by Joe Biden on, uh, or sorry, in his first debate and by Kamala Harris in her VP debate without attribution for the record, just stated as fact that Donald Trump called military people suckers and losers. And again, does it make sense? Can I hear that coming out of Donald Trump's mouth? Sure. Is it a fact? Is it verifiable? Can you put somebody's name behind it at the very least? So now we can either uh, 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 attack or bolster their character. Is there raw evidence? No. I think this is an important distinction because for those that aren't just rooting for one team to get over the finish line, the truth should matter. And there is a practice by which we can break down and figure out how closely we can get to the truth. We don't always agree but at least there are best practices and the existence of this kind of data, data that we can attack or bolster is part of it. Now let's get to something that I think is fairly ridiculous. As I hinted to before about exactly who knew about this hard drive and who knew about this information and for how long quote the post. The computer was dropped off at a repair shop in Biden's home state of Delaware on April 2019, according to the store's owner. The customer who brought in the water-damaged MacBook Pro for repair never paid for the service or retrieved it uh, or a hard drive on it, which its contents were stored, according to the shop owner, who said he tried to repeatedly contact the client. The shop owner couldn't uh, positively identify the customer as Hunter Biden, but said that the laptop bore a sticker for the Bo Biden Foundation named after Hunter's late brother and former Delaware, Delaware Attorney General. Photos of a Delaware federal subpoena given to the Post show that both the computer and the hard drive were seized by the FBI in December after the shop's owner says he alerted the feds to their existence. But before... Turning over the gear, the shop owner says he made a copy of the hard drive and later gave it to former mayor Rudy Giuliani's lawyer, Robert Costello, Steve Bannon, the former advisor to President Trump and former sloppy Steve. Although if this does become a scandal, maybe he will have cleaned up his act. Oh, also somebody who's under federal indictment told the boast about the existence of the hard drive in late September and Giuliani provided the boats with a copy of it on Sunday. Now, here's what I have a hard time believing. That if this hard drive has existed in the wind for a year and a half, right? So it's dropped off on April 2019. Let's say it sits at the shop for a couple months and nobody comes in to pick it up. It's alerted to the FBI, let's say in November, December 2019. 
It is subpoenaed by the FBI in on December 17th, 2019, according to the subpoena that shows up in the Post article. That means that if all of this chain of custody is indeed correct, and Rudy Giuliani's lawyer had this by early December, nearly a year ago, that means that we went through the entire impeachment situation. We went through Rudy Giuliani starting a podcast and we went through the vast majority of a a head-to-head election with Trump and Biden before this makes its way to the post and Bannon knew about it? Bannon knew about it? Bannon is the propaganda guy, right? He is the guy that explodes stories that stick to the right. So you're telling me that those two knew about it? Those two, Rudy and Bannon, they knew about this and said nothing. For what? Campaign discipline? I don't know about that. Now, what is the political liability of a story like this? I don't think it's particularly much. Uh, in fact, the, the real interesting thing here is whether or not Biden is asked a question about it at his town hall that he is going to do tomorrow night, Thursday night. By the way, that will now officially be counter-programmed by a Trump town hall on NBC. Biden's will be on ABC. Will Biden be asked about it? And if he is asked about it, what will he be asked specifically? Well, I would guess it's probably something along these lines. Biden has repeatedly made it clear that he had no interaction with Hunter Biden's dealings in Ukraine. Now, there is a viral clip of Biden bragging to a uh, a international relations council uh, telling a story that he went into the Ukraine and and said that if you don't fire this prosecutor that they're not going to get a loan guarantee from the United States and the guy was fired. That fired prosecutor says that he was looking into Burisma, and so that is an example of corruption right there. There are many international relations sources that say that that prosecutor was corrupt. I am not an expert in Ukrainian corruption, so I will not be making any kind of hard and fast rulings on exactly who the goodies and who the baddies are in Ukraine. Indeed, I will just presume that they are all warring factions that, you know, this is more about mob turf than it is about righteous uh, commitment to democracy and a, a villainous kleptocracy. Here's all I know about Ukraine, is that the citizens there were so disgusted with their government, they elected an actor as their president. How distasteful. Come on, guys. Be adults and at least elect a game show host. 
Anyway, here's Joe Biden in his own words uh, discussing the Ukraine situation. Get information about your son Hunter and his dealings with Ukraine. And this process of impeachment has ensured that everyone knows about Hunter's dealings with Ukraine. That's He's a good a- thing. And no one's found anything wrong with his dealings with Ukraine, except they say it sets a bad image. Well, do you agree that it sets a bad yeah. image? And my son said that. Do you think it was wrong for him to take that position? No knowing that it was really because but, that but it, company it, wanted access to you. Well, that's not true. You're saying things you do not know what you're talking about. No one said that. Who said that? Well, don't Who you said think that? that? Don't you think that it's... If you wanted to follow up on that now, you could say, well, the guy at Barisma said that he was thanking Hunter for access to you. So that's somebody who's saying it. And then, of course, there was this big moment on the campaign trail in Iowa when a question and answer uh, person, somebody in the audience, was just asking random questions to Joe Biden. Remember, there was a time, kids, uh, uh, ask your parents, but there was a time when Joe Biden actually just took non-vetted questions. Uh, They probably stopped it because things like this happened. But this was the result of a question in Iowa about Hunter's dealings with Burisma in Ukraine. Let's do push-ups together, man. Let's do, let's run. Let's do whatever you want to do. Let's do number two. Number two. Number two. No one has said my son has done anything wrong, and I did not on any occasion. And no one has ever said it. Not I didn't one. say you were doing anything wrong. I you said, said I set up my son to work in an oil company. Isn't that what you said? Get your words straight, Jack. The most mild and fair version of this uh, question would be, did you ever meet with Vadim Pazarsky of Burisma? And did you do so on behalf of your son? Did that meeting, if you wanted to follow up, did that meeting influence any policy? Would that policy have changed if your son was not on the board? I mean, those are fairly basic questions. And I think that you could get by if you're Joe Biden by just saying, I don't recall. I meet a lot of people. I met a lot of people while I was vice president, and I don't recall meeting them. Uh, But every decision that was made based on our policy in in Ukraine was uh, uh, not influenced in any meaningful way by Hunter. It was something that was determined by the State Department and and a lot more data than just me getting word from my son. So that's that. And then from there, I, I don't think that there's much to go on. Uh, if you believe that Hunter's dealings were, were you know, kind of shady, then you're going to believe that. If you're not, then you're not. And, and that's that. Here's what I do think is kind of annoying is that apparently, you know, there is a a dialogue going on right now on social media that this is a story that should be curtailed. It should it should stop from being spread. And I don't believe that. Like at, at the very least, this has information, it has emails, it has pictures that it says came off this hard drive. So whether or not you believe that this is completely fabricated and that's where you would have to go to make this thing not travel at all on social media or or, or to curtail it then this is information that should be attacked you can attack information 
You don't have to censor it. Censoring it to me is where you get into into a real shady area. And, and I, I, I really don't like it. I honestly think that it's damaging. And I don't know where this story is going to go, but as of right now, when I'm recording this at around noon Pacific time, Twitter has now banned the link of this. You can't share it publicly. You can't open it on old tweets. And you can't share it privately on Twitter. Now, they have the ability to do whatever they want. And maybe this story is BS. Maybe there is uh, uh, enough to show that, that this is faked or whatever, at which point Hunter Biden would have a tremendous libel suit. But to kill it now when it's just a sketchy story? Sketchy stories run all the time. I mean... Man, I, I, I just think it's bad. I think it's a bad decision. I think it's bad policy. And if, if we're going to have a conversation about safe harbor, who boy, does that seem to show editorial control when stories that have had less journalistic integrity, in my opinion, have run wild and free on that platform. I think it's damaging if you want Joe Biden to win. The idea of putting your head in the sand and pretending that these problems aren't there does not make your candidate better. It makes them weaker. Shouting nothing burger with your fingers in your ears is not a great tactic. And it's one that it's one that I mean, Democrats specifically have used, I think, far too often. There is such a thing as damaging information. The thing you need to do is assess it and push forward on it. At least that's my opinion. All right. Calm down. Calm down, everybody. Yes. Here's a little weird palate cleanser for you. Headline in the New York Times, the old gray lady, the paper of record. Anchorage mayor resigns after admitting to inappropriate relationship with TV anchor. Mayor Ethan Berkowitz apologizes for engaging in consensual and inappropriate messaging relationship with a local news anchor. The resignation followed an unsubstantiated claim posted to social media on Friday by the news anchor Maria Athens, promising viewers an exclusive story set to air on upcoming newscasts. Mr. Berkowitz responded by calling the allegation slanderous and false. Miss Athens shot back by posting what she said was an image of the mayor's bare backside with a laughing emoji. The anchor went on to claim that there were graphic photos of the mayor on, quote, underage girls' website, end quote. Yet after the bare backside image went live, political leaders in Anchorage lined up to defend Mr. Berkowitz until Mr. Berkowitz came clean. He and the anchor, Miss Athens, had previously engaged in a, quote, consensual, inappropriate messaging relationship. Quote, I'm embarrassed and ashamed for the hurt I've caused my family and our community. I take responsibility for my actions. 
Furthermore, it does seem like Miss Athens was pursuing a bit of a grudge. Indeed. Berkowitz, 58, turned over a voicemail that Athens sent him in which Miss Athens can be heard in a furious rant making anti-Semitic references and saying that she would be exposing the mayor as a pedophile. Quote, I'm going to get an Emmy, so you either turn yourself in, kill yourself, or do what you need to do. Miss Athens said, according to the audio clip, she then said that she would personally kill him and his wife. Miss Athens, 41, is the main anchor for two outlets, KTBY and KYUR, which broadcasts online as your Alaska link. In a unrelated incident, Miss Athens was arrested on Friday after a physical altercation with her boss at the news station, according to local news reports. This was not long after her video was posted to Facebook. She was charged with misdemeanor assault, criminal mischief, and disorderly conduct and released over the weekend. Yet another reminder to all the PX3 listenership as we approach the dreaded winter season that snow will rot your brain and make you crazy. He is live here in Oakland, California. He is indeed Andrew Heaton. How you doing, man? Hey, it's good to be in your studio. This is cool. I know. This is I, I don't think well, we definitely never we've never had a conversation in my in my no, studio. No, I right? see I've I've always previously been in Austin and you you beam in yeah. and and operate from there. So this this is new for me. Yeah, yeah, I know. You're you're here. Because here's the big problem with Austin, and I don't want to speak ill of our, our comrade uh, Brian Brushwood, yeah. but there is a decisive lack of parrots at his facility. Yes. Whereas this one, I like lousy I've, with them. Two parrots is too few, in my opinion. <laughs> Four parrots is too many. So, like, you're nailing We're it. We're right here. there. Yeah. We're right there in, in, in the sweet spot. Uh, well, well, welcome here. And uh, you uh, obviously are going to be here for the next few weeks mm-hmm. as we get to election day one. Yes. I feel like that's my branding election yeah. day one. Uh, uh, that that's I, going I, to be honestly, November third. I, f- I feel like I'll be here at least for three or four days more than that because I don't think it's going to be wrapped up super neatly. Like I don't think that there's just going to be a memo that goes out that night of like, "Hey, such and such is president," and like half the country's like, "Well, shucks, better luck, better luck next time." I think it'll. I'll be here probably. I imagine three or four days beyond that. I would suspect probably if even just for the hangover, mm-hmm. uh, but. In what I described to the audience as a fist fight inside the eye of a hurricane, uh, <laughs> there is a Supreme Court nomination hearing happening. Uh, it's odd, as I was watching it today, to, to even realize that, like, oh, wait, there's not much of a fight here happening. Like, every election in our lifetime... Uh, for president, for sure, there has been the idea that like you gotta gotta vote for your side because the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court, and now it, the the most pointed that we got from Kamala Harris, who's the vice presidential nominee, also on the Senate Judiciary Committee that's holding this hearing, is that this is illegitimate, hmm. not Roe versus Wade, which we've heard. 
ad nauseum on on both sides hashtag both sides for every election i've been alive for this is all about roe versus Wade. this is all about this this one moment in time no not that it's health care and that this is either illegitimate or unconstitutional i also heard today what is your perspective uh okay so it is hypocritical They've got that. Yes. When, when Democrats yes. are saying this is hypocritical, they are spot on. It's absolutely hypocritical. My, yeah. Like one of my favorite Onion headlines from the last two years is when uh, I, I think it was when Gorsuch, no, it, it, when Gorsuch was put in or something, and it was just a picture of McConnell laughing, and it said, "Cackling McConnell reveals he's been working for the Republican Party the whole time." <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, who'd have thought he was just doing it for a power grab? Yeah. So they're they're correct about that. It is not illegitimate nor is it unconstitutional. And, and I can further break that down. It's certainly not unconstitutional. Like you can, constitutionally, the president can appoint and the Senate, uh, the Senate uh, confirms and, and consents, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and that's being done. There's no timeline outlined by the Constitution. I, I, I can't think of a single constitutional objection to it. Um, the only way you can really claim it's illegitimate is if you're just making a, total, uh, a, a tautological argument that it's hypocritical, therefore it's illegitimate, which is what everybody seems to be doing. Uh, I, like, like I, when I first saw headlines of illegitimacy, I thought that they were saying literally illegitimate. This is not a real candidate. They, they will not be a legitimately confirmed candidate. We will ignore and, and the more I look into like the, the comments from um, uh, the, the senator from Hawaii and Elizabeth Warren, they're just saying I, it's very hypocritical. And therefore, I do not feel that it is legitimate. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's fine. Fair. Uh, if 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 legitimacy means your feelings towards hypocrisy, then yes, then it is illegitimate. It also they really got old Lindsey Graham because Lindsey Graham had that uh, uh, that moment four years ago yeah. with with Merrick Garland, where you know uh, he's like, "Look, when's the last time this happened? When's the last time that that a Supreme Court justice died?" Right before an election. <laughs> if this, if I, I just got struck by lightning, if I get struck by lightning again, I'll give away my whole fortune, right? <laughs> and then lightning hits him again, and he's like, well, isn't this a pickle? No, I'm yeah. not giving you I all feel my like, money. Like, that's like the last vestiges of, of, like, that's either him playing the odds or just like, subconsciously forgetting that YouTube can be dredged up at any time. No, it, that had to be the odds. Yeah. It, it had to be like, look, this won't happen again for another hundred years. Yeah, he's Four like, years Ru later. Ruth Bader Ginsburg will outlive all of us. She's going to be tap dancing at 100. Or at least at least she'll die in a year. She'll yes. die in two years. Yeah. Like, she just can't die within a one-year period. And as it turned yeah. out, it was like the most politically inexpedient for those comments that he made and it, it, it actually kind of bugs me because graham was one of the last votes that i have seen in my lifetime of let's vote based on competency so i was on the hill when sotomayor was yeah. uh was confirmed to the senate or confirmed by the senate uh, i was in the house we couldn't vote on that clearly uh but uh but the senate was doing it and uh, a bunch of the republicans like my republican senator from oklahoma uh jim inhofe uh, you know, immediately voted no, you know, all that kind of thing. Graham voted yes on Sotomayor. Yeah. And uh, and he was getting all this flack. And he's like, look, guys, like like his line, elections have consequences. Um, the president, whether you like it or not, is President Obama. He selected this person. It's our job as senators not to say whether we like this person or they would have been our pick. It's our job to say whether they're competent enough to hold the office of Supreme Court justice. 
uh, Sotomayor clearly is, therefore I'm voting for her. And I, and I really respected that. I thought it was a really good move. So it saddens me that he's basically turned in that moral high ground by virtue of this clearly nakedly partisan power grab maneuver. And I'll, I'll further add to it that like, everybody's a hypocrite in this equation. Like it, like because the Democrats wanted to do this oh, yeah. with Merrick Garland oh, yeah, 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 and the yeah. Republicans went, you can't do that. It's not that the Democrats changed their opinion. No, and went, you're right. We shouldn't do that. They went, Oh, you didn't let us do it. And now you did it. And it's like, yes, you're all hypocrites. All of you are hypocrites. Oh, I mean, as soon as I think I said this, when we did our, our, uh, uh, RBG death emergency pod, no one's coming out clean on this. Yeah. Like nobody has the ironclad opinion that they're super pumped they had with Merrick Garland that now they get to trot out for Amy Coney Barrett. Everybody sold out for their position. And similarly, we're seeing that like the Obama administration didn't really play all that much a hardball with Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland was out there so they could say, hey, look, yeah. you're going to feel bad when Hillary Clinton comes in <laughs> or you're going to you're going to jam him through during the, uh, uh, the, the, the the lame duck mini session that's going to happen because you're going to want. You're going to want him then because you're not going to see what happens with, with with Hillary when she gets it. And I might let her. I might pull Merrick Garland back and yeah. and, uh, uh, and and just let her do stuff. But they didn't really say like, all right, hey, look, we'll give you X, Y, Z if you put if you at least put it up to a vote. Right. Whether or not Mitch McConnell would have done that. Who knows? But. Cocaine Mitch is is known to wheel and deal. Yeah. He's going to need something that he can get back and show off, of course. And it seems like the the Democrats are similarly doing that now with Amy Coney Barrett, where it's like they feel that this is a glide path for Biden, that Biden is up 21 points in the fourth quarter and all they have to do is not throw interceptions. And so... They don't want to anger the Catholics. Right. A lot of Catholics in Wisconsin, a lot of Catholics yeah. in Michigan, a lot of Catholics in Pennsylvania and Ohio. They don't want to anger the women because she's a high-profile woman. And so they're just going to kind of like pepper her with some like, we don't agree that you're here. <laughs> and like, we don't like that you have a, you seem to be bad with health care. That you heard that over and over. In fact, here's Kamala Harris jamming President Trump's nominee through the Senate uh, in order to strip away health care uh, protections under the Affordable Care Act. The Supreme Court. Uh, uh, no, sorry. That, that that that's what she's going to do. Here is a more direct quote. Uh, These are not abstract issues. We'll be clear about how overturning the Affordable Care Act will impact the people that we all represent. So everything is based on this two tiered solution. You shouldn't be here. Not your fault. And the Affordable Care Act is the problem. And then, only then do they get from there to Roe versus Wade. Yeah. It's a healthcare conversation. Well, and they're they're keen on the open. Like, that was in, in the first and hopefully only presidential debate of this particular election. Oh, we're getting another one. Uh, out out, another out one. the gate, like, they were like, you know, Joe Biden, like, like you know, whatever the question was. And then he immediately pivoted to Obamacare right yeah. out the gate. Like, the yeah. very first thing he did was swing the whole conversation to Obamacare. Kamala Harris is doing that. That makes sense to me, too, because if you're playing for... Uh, Middle American union, middle class voters in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, 
Obamacare probably reasonably popular. Uh, Roe versus Wade a little bit more, a little bit more difficult to get into. Yeah. Uh, and and as you point out, like yes, they they could stand to lose a, a lot of goodwill from Democrats or Democratic leaning people if they go in and go like, well, she's crazy because she's Christian. Yeah. Which can, can I just say? Yeah. Like, uh, I I find it abhorrent. For anybody that is reviewing a candidate based on their religion, yeah. and I say that twofold. One, if you're an actual judge that should sit on the Supreme Court, whether you're a Democrat or Republican nominee or, or some other world where an independent gets up there, you should your, your religion should not influence your ability to make a ruling because nobody up there should be going, uh, gosh, I wish the law was this, so I'm going to make it. You should yeah. always be saying the law is X. I disagree with it, but that's what the law is, right? But beyond that, I also find it crazy because, like, I'm a secular guy now. I'm an agnostic. So from my perspective, everybody in the Supreme Court believes in magic. So like, what, yeah. like, so they're like, well, this magic's acceptable. This magic is kind of like a sedate Catholicism where we, we believe in the virgin birth, but we don't talk about it that much, whereas that magic's crazy magic. And I'm like, you all believe in magic. Yeah. Like, just like, like we, just, we, we have to come up with a system where, like, that's not considered a rubric. Yeah, I, I, I just the the thing that's crazy to me is that I've seen the same playbook run my entire life, and now it's like, it's just it's not like, like the, the court is gonna tip. The court's gonna tip in favor of of Republican nominees. This has been the reason to go vote forever. Like, like, and and now it's not. And I feel like I'm just, I'm looking around. And normally I'm the one that's always like, hey, look, here's the political strategy. Here's what you want to do, blah, 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 blah. And now all I get is people on this and then the court packing thing, which I want to ask you about. This idea uh, uh, that that there's, uh, uh, you know, the, the uh, you know, that, that, that Biden is going to, to put more people on the court where my Democratic friends are like, good strategy. Good strategy. Good strategy. I'm like, no, I'm the one who usually golf claps good strategy. You guys are the ones that are like, no, this is our lifeblood. This is what we fought for. You're the true believers. You're the ones who, who follow the right path. It's like, I, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Uh, okay. So you're, you're, you're agitated that. Uh... I don't know what I'm supposed to be. Like, it's like, I guess like now everybody just agrees that you should just play naked politics like, yeah like strategically? no i, I think like, that that's the answer is that like the, the court packing thing uh you know like, like uh, biden has been asked about this repeatedly and i halfway agree with biden where biden's like look uh like like trump can derail the whole media cycle i'm not going to play into his hands and i'm like i agree however you could just say i'm not going to pack the court and like it wouldn't be a media field day uh, and so my guess is that he's either not going to pack it, but doesn't want to piss off the progressives who want to pack it, yeah. or he's going to pack it, but doesn't want to piss off the conservatives for packing the court. And the problem I have with this whole packing the court thing, and I'm seeing all this heinous stuff come out, like, I, it's one thing, I, I am all in favor of this. I'm yeah. all in favor if somebody goes, hey, maybe we shouldn't have the big decisions of our country done by locked-in partisan appointees on a nine-person panel like it, it, it there was like a tepid piece that existed yeah. when it was four conservatives four four democrats and anthony kennedy like that's a weird way to design a constitution yeah. it's, it's like we should come up with something that's more equitable for everybody uh, i agree i agree let's do that i've got some ideas but i think what's going to happen if they do pack the courts is the system's rigged for republicans how do we rig it for us 
And I'm like, just quit rigging the damn system. This is why everybody yeah. hates you. Yeah. And, and when you do that, you're going to delegitimize the court. The only branch of government that is not summarily hated by the American people right now is the court system. Yeah. And if you if you start making it like not just a football, but a, like a Super Bowl, like then it's then it's out too. Then it's out. Like people are going to be smoking injuries and things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, one last thing. I don't thing. believe in God, but I believe in the sanctity of the, in court the court system. All right, one last thing. You just completed Judge Week on the political orphanage to uh, uh, big acclaim. Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't know anybody that didn't love it, including myself. Uh, for, for those who did not hear it, uh, explain it real quick, because yeah. then, I, then I want to ask you about uh, Amy Coney Barrett. Yeah, uh, so uh, w- one of my bugaboos is... There's not such a thing as conservative judges and progressive judges. We use that as a shorthand, but there's no such thing as conservative jurisprudence or progressive there are, jurisprudence. There are appointees. There are yeah, but there's but there's yeah. there's originalism and there's living constitutionalism, and, and unfortunately, media coverage is so summarily awful of most uh, most court appointments and jurisprudence that if if you're if you're just looking on the outside, you're going, oh, judges are super senators that are appointed to put in their their party, at, you know, forever. Untouchable, and that's not the point of them. That's not what they're fighting about. The schools of thought between originalism and living constitutionalism aren't about if you want progressive policies or conservative policies. It's about how you interpret the Constitution. What what's what are the means by which we we look at this document when there's room for error? When we're all not very confident, it says something. Why do uh, why do originalists approach it differently than living constitutionalists? And so what I did was I had a whole week of bringing on legal scholars. I kicked it off with Judge Andrew Napolitano, yep. who uh, who came in with natural law and talked about that. I brought in uh, David Strauss, who is a very well-respected legal scholar from the University of Chicago, to talk about living constitution to the point that he like kind of changed my mind on some stuff and made me think. And I thought, yeah, no, it, the, the the great thing about it, having listened to all the interviews is that you realize that there is a lot of room for argument about yeah. this and 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 for the the shorthand originalist is this is the constitution we need to understand exactly what they meant at the time that they wrote it yeah. and that is the law exactly the closer we get to that the better these decisions will be the further we get from that the worse it will be right. living constitutionalism is all right, they wrote this then, but not everything is literal, right. so we have to adapt it somewhat, and the concept of originalism is kind of a fallacy because obviously not everything is apples to apples in our modern world, so you're doing living constitutionalism no matter what, and I was like, damn. Yeah. I, I mean, like, I, I would, I guess, I mean... Far be it for me to fancy myself a, a a legal scholar, but like originalism always just seemed like all right. Look, that that's the rules. Uh, uh, we're all playing the game of life, and the Constitution is the rules at the bottom of the box. Like you, you got to break the ties based on those rules. I guess that that's what that is. But having having listened to all the arguments, I found all of them very very compelling, and then understanding that all these justices wind up folding in elements of it, even if they're predominantly one way, 
throughout their entire career. Yeah, it's one of the very few instances in my adult life where I walked away going like, you know, there's actually some pretty high quality people on both sides of that. Like, like yeah. most of politics for me is going a pox on both your houses. And I, I, I went away like I'm still very much opposed to judicial activism yeah. where you just go, hey, I wish this was the thing and I'm going to make it up and then retcon it. I'm, I don't like that. But but uh, very much so, like the like the the very quick uh, example that I think works really well for living constitutionalism is the Constitution forbids cruel and unusual punishment. Well, like in in 1789 or 1787, cruel and unusual punishment didn't include branding a horse thief on the face. Yeah, that was considered normal. Yeah. Whereas now, like we only do that in Kentucky. So like <laughs> you know, like it's <laughs> so it's a good example. So I'll I'll, I'll throw out for people that that want to go that want to do a deep dive on jurisprudence. Uh, and just understand what the actual lay of the land is beyond all of the largely grandstanding ephemeral arguments that are playing out in the hearings with yeah. Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, if you listen to Judge Week on the political orphanage, you will at least be irritated with media by the end of it or media coverage by the end of it because you'll know what's actually happening. Yeah, there's very, very little in in the discussion about this. And even then, I'm like looking through the headlines of uh, today's recording. We're, we're recording this on Tuesday uh, of, of today's hearings, and they're largely like Amy Coney Barrett uh, dodges questions yes. on X, Y, and Z. God, and it's I like, it's hate like, hearings. Yeah, number one, these hearings effectively, all hearings on some level, but specifically the high-profile ones, are effectively, for me, Instagram museums. They're like when your friends go to the museum of ice cream so they can take a picture of themselves in the silhouette with all the sprinkles yeah. falling. Like that's what it is for politicians. They literally might as well just turn around and take a selfie in front of the uh, the, the the person that's there because it's just there for grandstanding. What, what what I think that they should do is the, the the American people absolutely have a right to know what happens in these hearings, which is why I think by law transcripts should be available to everybody. But yeah. I I would I would turn off cameras if it were up to me. I, actually, what I would do is I would go. We're going to have the person that is being uh, subject to the hearing on camera so that the American people can see what they're like. Yep. And nobody asking questions gets to be on camera. We're just going to throw up a black screen with text that says what your thing is. I just and want... they all shut up because 90% of this is just grandstanding so that they can get their dumb line in the local newspaper and they go, oh, man, Chris gave them hell. Yeah. He's the last true. They're all criminals except for our guy. Oh, I hate it. They should. They should all be. They should all wear the eyes wide shut masks and like have all of their voice garbled, so you have no idea where they're coming from. Although I do like the idea of like, no, no, no. We're gonna. You're gonna question this Supreme Court, this this probable Supreme Court nominee via Twitter. So so you're you're going to have a uh you're you're gonna have a uh a a character limit on this. Well, like like on top of that, I mean, most of the people in the Senate are attorneys who yes. who know better. Yeah. They know what they're doing. So like like some of the questions that that Amy Coney Barrett's being asked is like, will you recuse yourself on health care? Well, like first of all. Nobody should be up there if they need to recuse themselves of virtue. Like, I'm going to say, like, if, if for some reason there was a Supreme Court trial where, like, your son is on trial for murder somehow, that's a situation where you're like, look, clearly I have such an emotional connection here. I'm exactly. going to have to recuse Anything barring like, if, that? If, if, if indeed you find yourself in a bar riddle, like, where uh, uh, it's like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't try this case. That is my son. It's right. like, oh, yes, exactly. the Supreme Court justice was a woman. <laughs> you owe me a beer. Right. But like, but 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 that's such few and far between. I can't. I, I don't know. There there might be. I don't know of a single 
Supreme Court recusement that's ever happened before. I'm, there's there's got to be one, but I don't know of any. But like, so w- would you recuse yourself uh, on on President Trump um, if 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 uh, if confirmed and there's like an Al, Al Gore versus Bush? Well, no, you shouldn't because you shouldn't be up there unless you possess enough enough objectivity about the law that you could handle ruling against the president that puts you in. And there's going to be, if he's elected for another four years, there's going to be things that his administration has proposed that are brought to the court, and any judge up there that should be up there should be able to say, no, that's not the law. So you, there, there should be no reason for specific policy indictments. And then with like Roe versus Wade as well, I, I'm out of my element here in terms of jurisprudence, but so much of it is just using buzzwords to frighten people. So like, uh, uh, Judge Barrett said she does not consider Roe versus Wade a uh, supreme precedent. And people are like, oh, so she doesn't even care. And it's like supreme precedent is just Marlbury versus Madison. It just means judicial review, the idea that the courts can strike down non-constitutional laws, and like Brown versus Board of Education. Yeah, There's that, literally that was, no that was, other that was, that was court the one, That was the one that yeah. was used today, where yeah. it was that she referred to Brown versus Board as super precedent. Right, and, but, it, but it's being used like, oh, so you don't like it. And it's like, nope, that's not like, like but, but yeah. it's because most people want to interpret all of this stuff as a policy discussion of what do you want the law to be. Yeah. That's not the job of judges. And Amy Coney Barrett is consistently saying just that. She's saying, it's not my job to say whether I like this law or not. It doesn't matter whether I agree with it. I'm not going to go looking for laws to strike down. I'm only trying to interpret the law as it was written. And I'm like, that's what she should be doing. Like, I'm I'm increasingly, like, I, I was worried about her two years ago because not knowing anything. Yeah. All of the media coverage was like, oh, man, like, we better put in Gorsuch because this big, scary, like, Christian lady is going to, oh, man, she's going to, you know, take away all the gay stuff. And I was like, oh, I don't want that. Like, let's go with Gorsuch. Yeah. And now I'm like, she, okay, she's just like a Scalia, like, textualist. Like, she's not yeah. she's not swinging a hammer uh, against gay people. She's just, what what is the law? Is it, okay, it's not in there. Sorry, you don't get it. Pass, yeah. pass it through amendments or pass it through Congress. That's their job. And that and that really, I mean, I, I think despite the fact that Gorsuch took the Scalia seat, I think she will likely oh, yeah. be the the Scalia replacement because yeah. it doesn't even seem like like Kavanaugh is as no. Textual. Clarence Thomas swung in to be like like what what Scalia, Clarence Thomas hadn't spoken on the court in like thirty years. Yeah, and then uh, and then Scalia died, and Clarence Thomas like came in and became like the arch originalist. Yeah, but he's he's like some kind of like Tywin Lannister, <laughs> like like <laughs> hand hand of the king character in terms of originalism. Yeah, Amy Cody Barrett will absolutely be the heir apparent to Scalia. To Scalia in terms again. In terms of textualism, yeah. not necessarily whether or not they are personally conservative or liberal. And that was one of the things that I found uh, uh, fascinating about Judge Week, and I would encourage everybody to go back and listen to it, is that everybody on all sides of these arguments are like, yes, these are beyond uh, your personal beliefs, a judge's personal beliefs. Yes, it tends to be that conservatives tend to be originalists and Liberals can tend to be living constitutionalists, but it's not a guarantee. And many times, in fact, 90% of cases, these are are irrelevant. They, they yeah. wind up coming to the same conclusion I, I, anyway because not, the, the law is clear. Exactly. 90% of the time, judges are actually going to agree on something because it's not like... Man, if 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 you agree with this statement that I'm about to say, please don't vote in this election. Like if if uh, not you, Justin, people no, listening. No, no. If yeah. if like if if you agree that it's the job of a judge to look at a law and go, mm, that I don't think that should be around. Like that is just that's not what they're doing. And like and it, it really is that gray zone of uh, like let let's say theoretically 
um, that the Constitution said that you have to be mature to be president as opposed to 35. Yeah. That, that's a kind of gray zone there where we now need to debate what does mature mean, right? And it doesn't say that, but if it did say that, where, where there's some kind of term that's not really clearly triangulated, then we've got to figure out how we're going to interpret it what and how we're going to do it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, well, hey, I feel like this was a good, uh, a good little uh, uh, maiden voyage here into yeah. uh, uh, our, our our PX3 side of this. Because can, wait, can, can I add a little bit more? Just because oh, yeah. we, we talked about court, oh, court packing, I want to just put in some some data nuggets for people so they yeah. they've got more when they get into bar fights. Yeah. Go go Zoom. go. Oh please. Um. So like a couple of a couple of friends have have reached out and been like, I can't believe that they would pack the courts. That's unconstitutional. I'm not for court packing, but it is constitutional uh, because the Constitution doesn't doesn't dictate how many people sit on the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court has it, it exists at the discretion or the numbers exist at the discretion of the Senate. The Senate, 100 percent, is in, in uh, is what what figures out how many people are on it. The president appoints. The Senate confirms the vacancies are determined by the Senate, not by the Constitution. It's had as few as five justices at one point in our history. It's had as many as 10 at one point in our history. We've had nine since, I think, 1867. OK. Uh, and then we debated packing him in 1937 with, or 1869. We debated packing it in 1937 under FDR. Um, so they could do that. That, although I would say it's inadvisable because that would be so clearly a naked power grab. What I would suggest would be a more equitable way of handling this. Uh, I don't remember who came up with the, the policy proposal, but I like it, which is just every incoming president automatically gets to appoint a justice. So it could be that we have 14 at some point. But uh, if it goes below nine, they get to make up the difference. So like if let's say we're at nine and, and Trump wins and we're at nine. When he loses or when he leaves office in four years and Kamala Harris runs becomes president, she gets to appoint a 10th judge and so on and so forth. So, so wait a minute. Always do, a you get, do you get one per term or one per president? I'd say per term. Per term. So yeah. you win two terms, you get two justices. Yeah. And you'd probably have that many anyway because I'd say like if it goes below nine – you get to do it, but you know, I but I I think that like, this is my main thing. Yeah. Rather than figuring out how do we rig this to get the decision we want, what I want to do is design a system where everybody looks at it and goes, yes, if I'm on the outside, that seems like a good system that I could live with, and I I would rather we go that direction. Yeah, and and term limits might be a part of it. It might be that like if you can't do it after eighty, or you can only do it for fourteen years. I, I guess the one thing I would wonder there is if it really solves the problem that people seem to have now, which is I'm not getting what I want either electorally or legislatively. And that's the problem, be it for Republicans with uh, upholding Obamacare yeah. or or liberals on, on various other different issues. The, the problem is I'm not getting this and we have a legislature that can not find a problem that they won't olay onto somebody else, including each other. Yes, I 100% agree. Unfortunately, you can't, like, if Congress keeps demurring on its duties and, and punting to the courts to try and, like, play principal for the squabbling kids, yeah. uh, then it's not going to work. Like, it's, it's going to actually require having some semblance of a balance of power between three branches and Congress, like, having backbones. So that probably won't happen. Well, right? that'll probably be, uh, uh, yeah, not, not, uh, not in the offing. Yeah. All right, so now uh, uh, this is the fun part because you're here in Oakland and we're going to continue this conversation about another big issue that is facing our, our, our nation and the possibility, something that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have not to this point uh, talked about, and that is the idea 
of expanding the Senate uh-huh. and what the 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 the, the, uh, the legislative would be there. Uh, the legislative version of court packing, Senate packing, Senate packing. Yeah. So because Political Orphanage is a, a little bit more of the ideas show and we're more of the action show, we're gonna take that idea over there. So make sure you subscribe to the Political Orphanage. This will be live there. Go back and listen to Judge Week and a. Big, big, big recommendation to go and subscribe to uh, the Political Orphanage Patreon at patreon.com slash Andrew Heaton because uh, you're also going to get more stuff with me on it mm-hmm. there on the Patreon. So so make sure you go do that. Look at that. Synergy. Yep. We're we are literally about to conclude this conversation then start talking about D.C. and Puerto Rico. Absolutely. All right. Uh, well, we will see you over there on the Political Orphanage. Ladies and gentlemen, what you just heard was a direct result of the money that you have given to this program. We got Heaton out here. I made sure he was hooked up with a hotel when he's when he's here, and and we we kicked him a little extra money when he got robbed, uh, uh, and that that comes from you. That is literally the, the the cash that you have given to this program over the year. We crossed an amazing milestone this week. When I awoke. Not knowing what on earth this year would bring us, and boy, howdy, was it a wild ride. And an ongoing one, I might add, before I jinx it. On January 1st, 2020, TakePoliticsSeriously.com brought you to a website with a counter. How many patrons we had? That counter read 600. This week, we doubled the sum, bitch. Yup, 1,200 patrons on this very program and and guys uh, we just crossed 1100 like a week and a half ago your support for this show has been staggering and we want to continue to make it worth your while that's why on tuesday we gave you a co-production between politics 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 and the daily tech news show all about a california prop called prop 22 that may or may not shape the future of gig work across the country. You can listen to that explainer. It's the same kind of nonpartisan, political, and when it comes to Daily Tech News Show, technical analysis that you've come to expect. Heaton's another example, and we're going to give you more Heaton on the uh, bonus show, our Thursday bonus show. Uh, it, it's, it's a really great segment. We already recorded it, but I made Heaton watch the Kanye West uh, a political ad and uh, we talked about evangelical politicians and and uh, where that could go anyhow you can get all that take politicsseriously.com if you're at that three dollar level that gets you that bonus podcast tomorrow you can do that until election day for six dollars i don't think that with tax you can get an ultra bonus combo at a fast food restaurant for $6. But you can get five podcasts a week until election day with that amount of money. Head on over there right now. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $6 total for five podcasts a week until election day. 
Our guest today is Lisa Sanchez. She's an assistant professor in the School of Government and Public Policy at the University of Arizona. Her research spans many specialities, including congressional politics, public policy, identity politics, state politics, political identity, and political participation. But we will be talking to her about the changing face of the Arizona Latino vote. Arizona, a a very crucial swing state in the upcoming election. Let's see what the trends bear for both candidates as we welcome Lisa to the program. Welcome to the show, Lisa. I'm really pleased to be here. Now, uh, uh, obviously, the battleground states are going to be what are focused on for not only our presidential election, but also specifically in the state that is your specialty, Arizona. We've got a very interesting Senate race. Uh, one of the demographics that will uh, that has been very much focused on over the last uh, six months or so is the Latino vote, and that will certainly come into play heavily in Arizona. So let's go ahead and and start from this point. Up until now, what are the recognizable voting patterns of the Latino demographic in Arizona? So up until this point, uh, the Latino vote in Arizona is decidedly on the side of, of liberal uh, liberal ideology and somewhat demo- and Democrat um, Democratic voting patterns. Um, certainly, uh, in this coming election, uh, Latinos in the state of Arizona have mentioned that in survey research that they are uh, voting to intend to vote overwhelmingly for Biden and Harris. Um, so something like 65% um, say that their their planned or intended vote in 2020 will be for, for Biden, and 18% say that they are voting for President Trump um, in the upcoming election. They also kind of suggest that they are excited and motivated to get out to the polls, um, and that hasn't always been the case among Latinos. Uh, so we've seen with each successive election that Latinos are becoming more and more engaged with, with regular politics, with, with voting in particular. Um, there had been uh, some low levels of, of voter registration and voter turnout among Latinos for the last couple decades. And we're starting to see some shifts in that. We're starting to see those actually increase over time. And a lot of, a lot of research uh, suggests that this could be due to kind of the, the focus on Latinos uh, when it comes to anti-immigrant and anti-Latino rhetoric um, among uh, the presidential election, uh, pre- presidential administration in the last couple of uh, years. So what we're hoping to see is hoping to see a big turnout for Latinos in this coming election. Um, and many of them have said that they're going to vote via mail. Um, so about 63% say they prefer to vote via mail. But in the state of Arizona, that's that's not actually something that's very uh, uncommon. So across the board, most elections have a heavy mail-in ballot um, uh, portion. So something like, I think the Secretary of State said that in 2018, 70, what was it, 78 percent of, of voters voted by mail for the midterm elections, and then the 2020 primaries, 88 uh, percent voted by mail. Wow. So, and that you know, and that and that really factored into that 2018 race between Cinema and McSally, right? Because McSally was the winner exactly. on election night, and then that slowly eroded. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So I mean, definitely, we know that the 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 mail in ballots and and certainly the coupled with COVID-19 are definitely going to make it a longer election night, um, probably an election week or an election 
trying to figure out who's who's actually won these races. Uh, Let me actually take one step back here, because growing up in Florida politics, uh, you realize very, very quickly that what is sort of uh, blithely talked about as the Latino vote is very often many different kind of cultures, uh, uh, especially in Florida, where you have Caribbean uh, uh, nations and and Mexico and Central America and South America. Uh, when we talk about the Arizona Latino vote, where primarily uh, are we talking about culturally? I would assume it's Mexico and Central America, but I don't know for sure. Yeah, so you'd be you'd be right on that. So um, you're absolutely right that the Latino vote is not a Latino vote. Um, it is a pan what we call a pan ethnic identity. So it includes many countries of origin. Um, in in Florida, as you mentioned, usually the biggest piece of that that vote is Cuban. Um, that's one of the big three uh, that that is part of the Latino voting bloc. Um, but in the state of Arizona, it is primarily those from Mexico. Uh, all right, so. You you mentioned that 18% are looking to support uh, uh, President Trump. One thing that I have been watching, because it is one of those weird counterintuitive things, considering uh, uh, the rhetoric, uh, not only from the White House, but also just uh, surrounding this race, is that there does seem to be an uptick specifically with Latino men uh, in support mm-hmm. for President Trump. Is that something that you have seen in Arizona? Um, I haven't seen specific uh, data uh, on, you know, looking at males versus females in the Latino community. But I know kind of generally on a national scale, Latinas are are different in a lot of really important ways um, in terms of participation. So they participate much less. um, And they also tend to be slightly more liberal than their, their male counterparts over time and, and, you know, across, across elections um, than Latinos, uh, Latino men. Yeah. Uh, so it wouldn't surprise me um, if, if there is a small uptick among male uh, Latinos. Um, but there again, I haven't, I actually haven't seen data specifically on that issue in the state of Arizona. Yeah. It's one of those things that's so weird again, because there is uh, yeah, I almost really wish that we just had a better name for, for the, Latino vote, not only because of the pronoun element that has become more and more uh, 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 complex as years have gone on, uh, but also because I I, I think it's it's just kind of a misnomer and it doesn't really educate people. We should just say like, I mean, if you're going to group everything, maybe like Spanish speaking demographic or something like that, because it's it's not the same in in the way that other ethnic identities are, at least in, in my estimation. Yeah, so, you know, this is a great point. We, I've talked about this a lot. I teach a class on Latino politics um, at the University of Arizona, and we talk a lot about the appropriateness of this panethnic identity, of the use of Latino or Hispanic. Um, uh, certainly Chicano was in vogue for a while in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the issue being, well, this is what we would call a social construction. Social constructions are nothing more than something that has some basis in fact that we give a societal meaning to. Um, and therefore, we can fundamentally make Latino or Hispanic mean anything we want it to be. We can, we can call it anything we want it to, to call it. Now, who has been instrumental in kind of creating the term Latino socially, you know, giving it meaning and giving it, um, allowing it to kind of take off? Um, that would be 
you know, all kind of all parties. So the media certainly in the 80s had a big piece in, in creating this identity. So they, you always heard in the 80s, waking the sleeping giant. Now there were some pejorative pieces to that, obviously, um, yeah. to call, to, it kind of has like a boogeyman aspect to it. Like it's, it's sleeping and then it's going to wake up. So I don't love that, but it was used a great deal during that time. Um, but so the, so, you know, they had to figure out something to call this group of people who are Spanish speaking, as you point out. And the census really was kind of the first in the, in the 60s and 70s, they started putting, um, actually putting something on the census that asked what your Spanish speaking origin was, um, whether you were of Spanish speaking origin. And they'd gotten better over the years at kind of asking this question and, and kind of figuring out what this group is and what to call it. But they're kind of the first ones who called it Spanish speaking, then they called it um, Hispanic, and then they've added in the term Latino, and then they've added in sort of origin groups. So it really, I mean, the long story short on it is we can make it whatever we want it. Yeah. What is it right now? It's all of these countries grouped together, as you as you rightly point out, that speak Spanish and share sort of a cultural identity, low kind of socioeconomic status across, you know, across the United States. Socioeconomic status is simply a fancy way of saying that they have um, economic indicators that kind of put them lower on the economic scale. So things like lower occupation, um, lower income, definitely younger. Um, so things like that would, would matter a great deal um, to socioeconomic status. And Latinos don't do very well when we measure them that way. Um, so all of these things help to group them and have, and, and the bottom line is start to make them have similar interests, similar interests that make them a voting block. Yeah. And yet there are many distinct voting blocks within that. Right. Because uh, Mexicans don't yeah. vote like Cubans don't who don't vote like Puerto Ricans. Like, you know, and, and, and even, you know, the, the, the line between Puerto Ricans and Cubans in Florida alone is fairly starkly <laughs> different. And those are two Caribbean islands that are not far from each other. So it's it's very, exactly. very interesting uh, uh, to look at it. But let's let's focus back on Arizona. I, I'd love to talk sure. to you a little bit about that night that that uh, 2018 race with McSally and Cinema. Uh, how sure. did the uh, uh, Latino vote come in on that race when it, uh, it was all said and done? So the Latino vote was was absolutely behind cinema in that race um, and instrumental in that was Maricopa County. So when we talk Arizona politics, there's really two places to look. It's Maricopa County and Pima County. So Maricopa County has often, uh, you know, over time, historically, been the county that is is huge. It's un kind of unwieldy, right? It's a bunch of suburbs kind of, you know, together. Um, but has has largely pulled towards sort of the Republican and conservative ideology when it comes to participation and voting. Um, now, Pima County on the other side, much smaller, still kind of a big portion of the voting bloc in Arizona, but obviously pulling slightly more to the, the liberal, cons uh, liberal or Democrat side. So those two together are really where we watch. Um, Pima County kind of did what we thought it would do. We, it, you know, it, it kind of went for Kirsten Cinema. it went blue. Um, but Maricopa County surprised us a little bit because we saw an uptick in Latino vote. Um, and we also saw them vote for Kirsten Cinema in larger numbers um, and kind of break that historical record of usually supporting, you know, Republic, very Republican kind of candidates. So part of the reason that is, is the, the landscape or demographics of Maricopa County have changed um, in, ooh, what year is it, 20, uh, 2017 or 20, can't remember if it's 2017 or 2018, but um, between that period, uh, 
Maricopa County was actually the fastest growing city in the or county in the United States. Um, it added something like 81,000 um, 81, people. And a lot of those were kind of left-leaning. So you had an increase in Latinos in Maricopa County um, during that period, but you also had an increase of kind of urbanites and people from California who are kind of bringing their more liberal politics from California and settling within within Maricopa County. And so those two things together definitely were, were pulling um, pulling Maricopa County to support Kirsten Cinema. And, 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 and just, just to be clear for folks who are, are when, when you're talking about Maricopa County, that is what contains Phoenix and Scottsdale, right? Yeah, Phoenix, Scottsdale. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah so, all that, all that big conglomerate. Um, yeah. We would usually just colloquially refer to as Phoenix. Gotcha. And then uh, uh, I would assume that the other county would be the Tucson area. Mm-hmm. Pima County is is pretty much most of Tucson, and then usually when we're even looking at statistics, it says uh, about Arizona, we say Maricopa County, uh, Pima County, and then other rural. Um, that's how that's how much politics in Arizona is dominated by these by, two by these two counties. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and so, what led to that trend of McSally being up? on election night and then the the erosion to eventual overtaking of of cinema. Well certainly uh we we saw many people like I said who in Arizona vote um on the we call it the pebble the permanent early uh voter list um and so in the state of Arizona you can easily um you you put your name on this list and you always get your ballot sent to you. It's, it's like you're on a, a permanent absentee ballot list gotcha. and you can just send it in via mail and those ballots get counted afterwards. And, you know, so it seems like that, that in terms of who voted and when the people who voted early were cinema supporters and the people who voted on election day tended to be, um, uh, mixed voters. So that's why we see the shift. Let's talk about kind of the, the direction of the Republican Party of Arizona, because it's something that has a very, very rich history, not only with Barry Goldwater, but then John McCain, who takes his seat. Uh, at one time, Goldwater kind of thought to be this arch conservative that's too extreme. And then as the decades move along, Goldwater's perspective becomes more of uh, the mainstream. McCain then becomes sort of a... Uh, a, 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 you know, retains the independent streak, but probably has a little bit of a different worldview. It, it seems mm-hmm. to me specifically, both with McSally and then the decision to go with McSally again, and the fact that she doesn't particularly strike me in in the same kind of mold as either Goldwater or or McCain, that that the Republican Party in Arizona seems to be without an identity. Yeah, at some level they they are. I mean, I think I think what's going on in Arizona with the Republican Party is going on across the nation. There's somewhat of a schism uh, happening within the Republican Party. So you have kind of the old world elites like like John McCain, and I would add to that um, former former senator in Arizona, uh, Jeff Flake. Right, both of these people were were political Republican elites who had more of a more of a 1990s. Uh, view of of what Republican politics was, yeah, um, or, or could be, or is, um, depending on when we're looking at them, right? Um, 
uh, less less sort of the influence of Trump, I guess, is what probably the shorthand. Yeah, it is was it was you know kitchen table, lower taxes, uh, uh, you know, dabble yeah. in the culture war, but that's not the main thing. Just the country club Republican. Exactly. Yeah, well, yeah, um, and 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 honestly, also a difference in terms of how politics is, how political war is waged. I think that's also a huge difference between the McCain's and the Flakes of the world um, in Arizona. They they really felt like politics was more of a, uh, you know, great minds can differ, right? Yes, you, we yeah. can we can have these big conversations without getting nasty. Recently, politics has become increasingly uncivil i mean the debate did you catch the debate last night yes 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 indeed although this this will air uh, uh next week but uh uh yes sure. no this is uh, yes. uh, uh very very yeah. much so yeah that was that was uh, I mean, that was loud yeah i mean that that's that is what po- political warfare has become um it's a mess although and, although and- i i think that arizona and if we're going to model you know the two most famous names in mccain and goldwater both the times yeah. that they tried to take their brands national, they kind of shrunk from the conflict. They didn't like either of them yeah. really liked the conflict. In 1964, Goldwater yeah. certainly didn't. And in 2008, uh, McCain kind of, uh, uh, you know, he throws his Hail Mary with Palin. But past that, he yeah. just kind of took a knee. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, he was even he was even so opposed to kind of this idea that you you of, of the more personal attacks and the more. um extravagant personal attacks that I remember him during a debate, presidential debate with McCain. He said, you know, somebody mentioned that maybe Obama was not a citizen or he was, you know, no, that was a a rally. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a rally. And and he, and he, and he he took the mic from the old woman who said that uh, he was a Muslim. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember him saying, no, sir, no, sir. He, he is an American and he's a good man. Yeah. I, I didn't see that on the stage last night. Uh, Oh no. That, 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 that politics has, has left the room. Uh, which is surprising because Biden has been in this game so long as well. So, you know, I mean, to get back on topic, though, for you there, I mean, I think McSally has really thrown in her hat with with the new kind of version of the Republican Party, which right now at the helm is Trump. It's more of a, an unabashed, more you know, in your face type of Republican Party. Um, and and it seems like Arizonans are actually kind of shying away from that. Um Get, you think about Mark Kelly. Mark Kelly is doing really well. Yeah. Um. In right now. My, so yeah. My my question on that is, when she loses in 2018, what makes you <laughs> think that you just load her up and run her again? Like like what what element of that race made the Republican Party think, oh no, that was a fluke? Right. I I mean I too I, I was talking to uh, an, another reporter um, with Bloomberg um, government. And she was, you know, she and I were, were talking about the same thing. It's, it's kind of strange. You know, a lot of people say, well, why is McSally doing so poorly in this race? And and my comment was, well, because she did poorly in her last race yeah. too. Um, so obviously there's something there that Arizonans are really not responding to. And some of it is probably, especially with Hispanics and Latinos, that immigration, the immigration stances are very, very um, related to Trump. And they are very, very extreme. Um, so she has become really well known for that. Uh, one element in in the Latino vote, to get back to that for a second, uh, sure. is that in, in general, and this does sort of uh, span a lot of the different national origins, is that uh, uh, Catholicism and, and a religious uh, upbringing is something that is common. And, and oftentimes, if that's not 
a pull toward the more conservative side, it is at least something that they do find important. Uh, has the Republican Party just kind of lost the plot with, with Latino voters in appealing to them on religious grounds? I'm so happy you brought that up. Uh, I'm, I'm actually writing a book with a colleague of mine on Latino Republicans in particular. And some of it is trying to kind of suss out what is it that, first of all, Latinos who are Republicans like about the Republican Party? What is it that draws them in? Um, and then the second piece is, what could the Republican Party do that might actually draw in more Latinos? And, you know, obviously the, the, the easy money is on, well, let's look at the religious aspects. The problem with that for the Republican Party is that religious aspects haven't really been on the agenda in a big enough way in the last several elections. It's, it's less, the, the culture war has moved on a little bit from that, such that it's still there, right? It's still, still kind of nested within things like healthcare. Um, but but at, at the end of the day, it's really these bigger issues of the economy, of, of um, healthcare, of immigration, that kind of eclipse all these, what we would call latent conservative identities um, that may be underlying what a lot of Latinos have as an ideology, but they're just not salient at the moment. They're not the things on the agenda. So when you, you, you're you hammering on immigration policy, well, you're not likely to bring up sort of these, these positive latent feelings that might actually match with the Republican party. You're just like, okay, this is not a party for me um, as a Latino. I'm, I'm not welcome here. So you're not looking for any common ground. And I think that's, I mean, if Republicans really wanna start outreaching for Latinos, they need to start thinking about how they're gonna deal with that that, that issue. Beyond uh, religious issues, what other threads uh, are you exploring in your new book? Uh, so we're we're trying so we're trying to get away from this idea of Latinos as just Latino Republicans as just Cubans. So it simply yeah. is not true. Yeah. Um, there are I mean even in the state of Arizona where we have a, a very heavy sort of Mexican American um, population uh, of, of Latinos, I mean you still see eighteen percent are voting for Donald Trump. Um, so the question is, how do they kind of overcome these feelings of anti-immigrant rhetoric? Um, so we're really trying to look in, in uncommon places. Um, so thinking about, you know, Republicans in the state of, of Arizona who are Latinos, not just those Florida Republicans. Yeah. Other things we're trying to think through is um, what, what sort of psychologically allows these voters to to hold kind of this idea that they're not that the Republican Party of Donald Trump, who's who's sort of criminalizing Latinos and and calling them you know, rape you know more racialized population, how do they kind of get around the cognitive dissonance of thinking that that's not them, um, that that he's talking about someone else? So we want to do some sort of some some. Um, uh, political psychology kind of studies to figure out how, what is it about these people that allow them to, to, to feel like this, this is not me. This is not me who is being um, called out. And, and again, like I said, in, in Arizona, it, it is absolutely Latinos who are Mexican who are being called out. And that's the, you know, the amount that's here. We also want to look at some of the um, Latinos in New Mexico um, and, in California. So um, like my family is a land grant family from the state of, of um, New Mexico, actually two sides of my family are. So uh, my, my paternal grandmother, Elsie Sanchez, 
um, was an Atrisco land grant um, recipient um, or heir is what we would call them. And, you know, been there since the 1500s. So one of the things we're exploring is how um, being in this country so long actually may make you more and more like um, other sort of non-Latino white um, Republicans um, and, and, and what that process might look like. Um, so we're, we're looking in, you know, as I say, we're trying to find some more interesting places to look at Latinos. And by the way, what, we're, what we also are doing in that regard is trying to, to uh, survey enough Latino Republicans. So one of the problems that we see when we're doing this research is that you have, you know, there's, there's a smaller sample uh, in the population of Republicans. The population of Latino Republicans is small. So when you go and you do a nationally representative sample, even if you oversample, pull more Latinos um, in non-jargony terms, um, to look at, at, at Latinos, you still don't get very many Latino Republicans. So when you're making inference based on, you know, if we had a hundred person sample, which is, is far too small, but just as, as an example, we had a hundred person sample and the US population has 17% um, Latinos in it, well, that would be 17 Latinos. Yeah. But then if we look at the idea that that Latino Republicans are about 18% of that, right? 20. Yeah. So you're looking at two people to make, you know, inferences yeah. for the entire for population of Latino Republicans. Yeah. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna put out a survey that just looks at, at Latino Republicans. Well, I am fascinated to see your research. Uh, uh, we yeah. <laughs> will keep an eye on it. Uh, Lisa Sanchez, the ass uh, assistant professor at the School of Government and Public Policy at the University of Arizona. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. And that'll wrap it up for us today. We have had such amazing support over the week. I am grinding for you folks. Grinded. Uh, hopefully, uh, we have we have a few fun things popping up over the next few days. But a reminder that this happens largely because of the beautiful people that support us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com, including those at the Titanic $10 tier, including Lord Generic Frenchman, Dr. G, Jacob Wilson, Dallas Danger Taylor, your boy, Craig... Zombie Doc, Gazer Beam, Utah, Jimmy Montana, Captain Bunzo, Cujo, Tally, Richard, Memory by Ab, Crookie McCrookface, Justin Ryan Egan, D Laser, Vote for Gloria Young, Matt, who called in to one of my live streams from both his wife's labor and delivery of their child, and yet his wife was so cool that she got him this shout out. I mean, that's couple goals right there. Vote for Joe Biden 2020. Evan, Rob, vote for Trump 2020. Martin, Government Unfiltered. Neil, Archie, Darren, Daily Tech News Show. Adam, Joe, David, Jacob, Olin, and Angela. DL, Stephen, Kyle, Jad, Miranda, Jenny, Robert, Paul. The most conscientious, nonpartisan listeners. Glenn Wolf, Brand, Chili Scoop, Dustin, David, Just Another Pilot, Mike. That's middle-aged Mike. Jim, the Jan MacBook Pro, Leon Frozen Summer, Jay Pink, Andrew, Matthew, and James. Should you like to join their ranks? Well, it's just this simple. Head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. We will see how high we can climb by uh, election day one. And 
I want to do everything to earn it. I want to do everything that in my power to make you guys feel good about independent political analysis. Oh, my, my biscuits are burning about this Twitter thing, this New York Post story. Like, I'm not saying the story's great. I, I think the story has holes in it. But like, ooh, we've had a lot of stories with holes in it. I mean, besides Twitter, like, pedantic journalism guy, that's me. Yipes, stripes. All right, that wraps it up for us today. A reminder, you can follow me on Twitter at Justin R. Young. You can send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Big mailbag coming up on Friday's episode. Get five episodes a week until election day for only $6. Now including extra live in studio, Andrew Heaton. But till the next time, this is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics, but this is the only show that talks about her. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs) Dog and Pony Show Audio.